0: Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people from the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, reflections, their big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, a clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I'm your host for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Ann Becker. Dr. Becker is Dean for Clinical and Academic Affairs and Maud and Lillian Presley, Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine and Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's trained as both a psychiatrist and medical anthropologist, and we'll talk about what that means and how that's shaped her research career, which has focused on social and cultural factors associated with eating disorders, social barriers to care for mental disorders, and school-based interventions. Dr. Becker is the former co-editor-in-chief of Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry, and former associate editor of the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and past president of the Academy for Eating Disorders. Dr. Becker will talk with us today about pioneering work that she has done in Fiji and how that has further informed her understanding of culture and psychiatry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kathy. I'm delighted to be here. So, and let's get started sort of at the beginning in terms of your growing up years, and maybe what were your interests, and what might you have done if you hadn't become an anthropologist and psychiatrist?
1: This is way... Out of the range of what you expected, but I always wanted to be a meteorologist, and that um, that will have to come in a different life. But I I actually started college thinking that I would be a linguist, and um, and started by taking courses in sociolinguistics, which just fascinated me, and um, and I quickly learned that that wasn't going to be the right path for me, and I wanted to have a broader view of. Uh, Societies and how people made meaning um, within their communities, and so for me that was anthropology. Mm-hmm. So you started
0: out as an undergrad in thinking it was in linguistics, but pursuing a degree in anthropology, and then how did you get from anthropology to health and to mental health?
1: Well, I should probably back up because I I actually. Uh, I started college in 1979. And back then, um, it was not a given that a woman would graduate and have a professional career. And I think for that reason, we were really um, steered toward charting a course. And you sort of had three choices, medicine, business, law. And uh, for me, I, my father was a physician, my mother was a nurse, I had three older brothers who eventually went into medicine of course i didn't know they would at that time but they all became psychiatrists so you can you know can see where this is going um <laughs> i i felt like i had to do this path this was the pragmatic thing to do but i always wanted to do something a little different and right around that time some of my mentors and and eventually some of my colleagues had gotten interested in how you know much more interested in in a sophisticated way in how culture and social norms, shape, illness experience, help-seeking behaviors, et cetera. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is perfect. I can do both. So that was kind of what got me started. And of course, I have to credit my mentor, Arthur Kleinman, who really blazed the trail in this way. And he's actually still a mentor of mine. So um, so thank you, Arthur. That's a shout out to Arthur. <laughs> so, and let me just make sure I heard this correctly. You have three brothers and they're
0: all psychiatrists. So the four of you, when you get together, is psychiatry what like that must be an interesting conversation?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it, it it often is. I will say that, and yet I think that the common thread there is that we're all just really interested in understanding people and hearing people's stories. And and actually my brothers have done very different things in the field of psychiatry from me, so we're not, you know, clones or anything like that. But yes, we do talk about the field a little bit when we Yeah, talk. I can imagine. So, um
0: you pursued, you said you wanted to pursue psychiatry but with a twist, right? With a from a different angle. When you got started, did you know that that Angle was about eating disorders, or was it? What was the angle that was different that you wanted to pursue?
1: Yeah, so for for me, first of all, I didn't—I don't think I even know what eating disorders were, and in in fact, in, I don't think bulimia was even uh, you know formalized as a diagnosis until I was starting college. But there was a lot of uh, you know chatter about disordered eating then, and and a lot of interest in it. So, so I was drawn to that, but actually my interest in body image, I think came a little earlier when, when I was um, a teenager, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, curvature of the spine. And I lived in Milwaukee where the Milwaukee brace was invented. And I had a very conservative and, and, you know, very caring treatment team who put me in this back brace, which was very clunky and visible and I I had to wear it for eight years. So um, so for me I was you know it, as a teenager I was always thinking about how I would wear clothes so that it kind of you know minimize showing this this apparatus and, and and of course as you can imagine that's something that's stigmatizing for a teenager although I had really great friends and and you know I think I was pretty much buffered from that. But it really at that age I thought a lot about how people present themselves to the world and how they write scripts and and pursue narratives that position them. And you know, of course, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms as a teenager. But I, I, it really uh, was very very interesting to me, you know, for personal reasons. So later, um, when I started to gravitate towards psychiatry, and and especially when I uh, started my ethnographic field research in Fiji. Um, I got very interested in body image per se and, and specifically around the dimensions of weight and shape. Tell us how you got
0: to Fiji and what shaped the, the work that you did there, the studies that you did there.
1: Yeah. Well, well, I got to Fiji in a, in a completely serendipitous way. I, um, As a, you know, I was studying anthropology, as I said, as an undergraduate. And I I just really, really wanted to go to the Pacific Islands region. That was the um, sort of birthplace of ethnography. And of course, um, uh, the great um, anthropologists, Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, had done their work in that region. And, um, and then, you know, I was really fortunate because I just, I kept trying to find people who could make introductions. And finally, a friend who knew someone who had been a Peace Corps volunteer who had lived in a village and, uh, and they introduced me uh, and I'm, you know, writing letters and sending them by post, of course, because there's no email back then. Uh, and, the, and I found these incredibly generous hosts, generous, meaning, you know, they just said, sure, you can come stay with us. That's that's completely um fine. We're not really sure what you'll be doing when you're here, but that's okay. We'll figure it out. And um, so that's how I got there. But, you know, so percolating in my mind then was, you know, were all these issues around sort of, you know, for me, what my, my body experience had been, this disconnect between the way I saw myself and the way others saw me and trying to bring them, you know, sort of into alignment. And so this was running in the back of my mind. And when I first got to Fiji, I, I wasn't at all, um, I wasn't studying body image. I was actually studying, was very interested in, in uh, sort of uh, the way that women in the communities were responsible for um, for fishing. And there's a lot of gender segregation in Fiji and women in many ways had soft power, but you know, not a lot of authority. And so I, I was interested in how they created collectives and and so I hung out with these women who were you know fishing all the time and and we just I heard you know I I wasn't able to understand them initially of course because they weren't speaking my language but but what I did take away from that as I'm thinking about these body image issues was that I became you know sort of a a topic uh, among them and and it was around you know what I what I looked like. And as you can, you know, my clothes were different, my hair and, and you know, skin were different, everything was different. And and they were just, you know, interested in talking about it and, and drawing comparisons. And it, you know, initially, as you can imagine, that was a little, <laughs> a little uncomfortable for me. Um, but you know, it's also human nature. And but for for me, what was so interesting about this was how public the discourse was. It wasn't covert at all. And, and a lot of it was around what I was eating and whether or not I looked, you know, like I had gained weight. And and so I started, you know, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I started to register that people when they greeted me would say things like, oh, you look great. You've gained some weight. And um, and I wasn't, you know, I was, I think that was a normal weight back then. But but what they were saying was you've gained more weight. And now you look to us, you know, more like we think someone should look. And so I was fascinated, not just around, you know, the compliments around weight gain, which of course we never really had in the U S but more that people would be so direct about it and, and so, um, affirmative affirming mm-hmm. about it. And, and so when I, uh, when I went. Home and and eventually you know decided I would do my um, joint MD PhD in medical anthropology. I wanted to go back to Fiji and understand this better. So that was how I got to this topic in this place. And mm. the the you know it, the thing that makes me smile now is that when I went back to sort of set up my field research, um, it was sort of a reconnaissance trip. And when I, people said, of course you can come back, but you know, PS, you should really get married and have some kids before you do, you're getting kind of <laughs> old. <laughs> um, another, and-
0: another way in which they were very direct and explicit about what you should be doing in your life or how you should appear in your life.
1: <laughs> exactly. They had the power of direct comments and, and, but when I told, they said, what are you going to study? And I said, well, I'm just fascinated by how, you know, attentive everyone is to body size and how interested people are in whether or not people gain weight. And they looked at me and they said, huh, yeah, no, that's not really a thing for us. Um, And and so, you know, again, pointing out that um, this was, you know, they were, it wasn't that they said, don't come because that doesn't interest us. They just said, no, you've got us wrong. That's Uh not something that we're were so interested in. So again, the sense of it was so normative. So, Anne,
0: you're going back to Fiji and you developed a whole research program there that to a large extent got captured in a book that you wrote, uh, Body, Self, and Society, The View from Fiji. Share with us highlights from what you learned as you dug in to what was going on in Fiji around body image self and society
1: it took me a quite a while to get to a point where I could actually talk to people in their own language about these very sort of personal um, uh, experiences that they were having with their bodies so a lot so I started off, um, with a lot of observation, which was, you know, partly in response to me and this, this whole chatter about people were worried, you know, if I didn't finish my dinner, people would comment on it. In fact, I remember once, um, you know, we'd had some octopus soup for lunch and it was delicious, but we'd had it like every day for a month. And I, you know, I really had enough. And the, the chief of the village, like came walking after me and said, you know, I'm, I noticed that you didn't finish your soup. Is there something wrong? And so these kinds of, and and this would happen quite a bit, actually, with commentary about children in particular. So if children weren't eating well, or if they were, uh, if they didn't appear to be growing as well as people wanted them to, there would be a lot of social commentary about what kinds of social losses or neglect or stressors might be driving this poor weight gain or poor appetite. And so as I looked into this more, it um, uh, what I came to understand is that weight gain was really a concretization of how well someone was cared for and fed within a community. And so it wasn't, it was a way of embodying social care. And Mm -hmm. so when a person, a child, a guest, or anyone gained weight, it wasn't so much a reflection of their personal uh, adequacy in, you know, matching or uh, attaining a cultural aesthetic ideal. It was more about, Reflecting that they were situated in a caring and dense, strong social network. And Mm -hmm. the takeaway there was, and I'll fast forward a little bit, because it took me a long time to understand this. I first went with a very simplistic idea. Oh, okay, their bodily aesthetic ideals are for robust, large, well-fed bodies. That's why they don't seem to have eating disorders here. And that's why they're not bothered by gaining weight. And actually it wasn't quite that at all. So it, you know, some of that was true, but what it turned out was that people didn't aspire to match the aesthetic ideal. They didn't feed themselves up so that they would be large, not at all. Instead, their position on that was, well, my body is my body. I don't really control what it looks like Other people have some control over that. And some of it is just the way I am and the way I was born. So what was the, you know, sort of the flash of insight finally for me was that not so much that there was a different aesthetic ideal, and maybe that was protective against eating disorders, but that there was a different aesthetic ideal, but people had a different relationship to that ideal. It was something they could admire and point out. Yeah, you know, that's beautiful, but, you know, has nothing to do with me. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with me at all. Eating disorders at the time in Fiji, and this is in the um, mid-1980s, um, They it, there wasn't an indigenous category for them. It was clinically, it didn't seem that they were there. You know, obviously they could have been missed. There was one case report where someone was, you know, very low weight could have been anorexia. But what I think what was more convincing to me that there, you know, apart from the clinical records and, and uh, no indigenous category was uh, the very sophisticated uh, chief of the village at the time, a woman who was also trained as a health professional. She was a midwife. Um, you know, she uh, had been in health centers all her life and, and she, she, she was so perplexed when I described what eating disorders were. And she said, no, we absolutely don't have those here. And, um, and she said, but, but look, I'll tell you what, if you have them in the US, send them here treat them for you because no one in Fiji is going to have something like that. So it was that, it was just, you know, inconceivable at the time there. And and of course, so I was guided by this notion, what is protective about this milieu? And I got it wrong, right? It wasn't that there was a different bodily ideal. It was that there was a different valuation of what a body should look like and what aesthetics meant, right? appearance was not something that people thought about a lot. Um, except to admire it. And, you know, maybe it mattered um, in, you know, at a certain time in your life when you were thinking about getting married, but even then, not so much. Um, marriages were arranged traditionally. And, um, and so people were, uh, it, it, the, the other thing, Kathy, is that, um, and this will sound Strange uh, to uh, someone who is from America, um, as it did to me at the time, is that they, people said, "Oh, you don't really own your features. You don't get to decide how to cut your hair. Um, you, you know, that's that's for your parents to decide." And and you know, this idea that uh, people would be autonomous and make choices and self agency, just you know. W- it was so different there. And that of course had a bearing on eating disorders as well. So is it, am I hearing you correctly?
0: Uh, is the takeaway, what piece of what I hear, Anne, uh, and I, I've talked with you about the work you've done in Fiji many times, but every time it takes on, I feel like I understand more this very fascinating perspective that tells us a lot about Fiji, but also tells us a lot about other places in the world, uh, including our own societies and cultures. Um, But part of what I'm hearing you say is body shape and weight, the meaning of that in some ways belonged to the community, that the community took pride in having members who were well cared for and having a community of people who were had large body sizes meant that we as a society are taking care of our people is that a piece of what you're saying and yes. that the body image itself wasn't driven by the individual trying to achieve something and having agency and sort of the body being an instrument of demonstrating something about myself but actually is something of a a marker for the community on how the community is doing so it's it's a story of collective as you say versus individual and it's a story of what's a difference in terms of what's driving the meaning around this larger body shape.
1: Kathy that's a, a really nice formulation and let me give you one more example of that um that I think uh nuances it a bit more, which is that a lot of this, it's not that there aren't different dimensions of why people care about bodies in Fiji. It's how those dimensions get valued. So as an example, uh, one of the things I did uh, for, for the book was to present people with, you know, you've seen, everyone has seen the gradated cartoon shapes of different body sizes. What I did was I actually, I created, you know, something that looked more uh, Itauke Fijian, and I, I basically cut them up and I shuffled them and I presented them. We, I had a lot of help, presented them in random order to over four hundred respondents to see, you know, what which ones were considered beautiful, but you know, again, that was the wrong question. So I did ask about attractiveness, but I also asked which one has the highest quality of care. And so what you could see is that with the very large shapes, um, which would probably be read as um, obese in, you know, in other contexts, the large shapes would have the highest rating of quality of care, but maybe not as high a rating in attractiveness. But again, what did they value locally? They valued the quality of care. So attractiveness it wasn't that people couldn't see that. Well, this person looks like she's marriageable, or you know, whatever it was. It was that that wasn't valued necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you
0: spend this time in Fiji, get a really get the insider's view. Take the time to really from an ethnographic perspective, understand more fully what the meanings are and what's going on. You return to the US, um, then you go back to Fiji, right? Share with us, there are these pioneering uh, findings that you had in the naturalistic study of the world and technology. Uh, Tell us I know you could speak about this for a long, long time, but sort of the highlights uh can you share with everyone today highlights from your observations across time in Fiji
1: yeah so i kathy i was uh, I was back in Fiji doing actually um uh, during fellowship so I had finished my psychiatry residency and i was I was back there and 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 actually the the project that I was working on initially was in A different area of postnatal depression. But I learned when I was there that, um, and this is circa 1994, 1995, that the government of Fiji for the first time was going to allow broadcast television to be uh, available to the residential areas. And this was huge. They were one of the last places on the planet to do this. And so I knew that everywhere you know, else in the world where there were TVs, there was some concern about media exposure and how that impacted young people. And I thought this was really important to follow along, partly because I felt confident that the Fijians would be protected by their, you know, the many um, elements of their valuation of care and bodies, you know, being well fed. I thought they'd be protected and I thought it would be an opportunity to learn, um, from, you know, how things unfolded. So we, you know, in a right, you know, as TV was being introduced, we were able to put together a study and at that time, um, it was, you know, we, again, we didn't have too much time to do this. So we put together a study it was a it was a two wave cohort study. Um, and so we went to two schools And, uh, and we assessed eating pathology in uh, 1995. And then in 1998, we went back to the same two schools, you know, got the same age, young women, Italo-Fijian, and we assessed it again. And we were very, you know, we understood that we were doing this in a way that these concepts that were, uh, this was the E26, actually, that we used sort of as our baseline assessment. We understood that self-report wouldn't necessarily be that accurate and people might misunderstand the question. So we we wanted to choose an indicator for disordered eating that would be likely to generalize across very diverse cultural contexts. And so, you know, one of the ones that we really zeroed in on was whether or not people were purging to manage their weight. And we only counted Um, as positives. If we were able to sit down with someone who ticked, yes, um, I'm doing this and in, you know, and have a face-to-face conversation to establish that, yes, this is exactly what she was doing. And it was in order to manage weight. And what we found in, in, you know, sort of when TV, you know, right at the dawn of the TV era, no one was doing that. That was, you know, zero in our, in our small group. By 1998, when we went back to do the reassessment, we had 11% of the young women were, were doing this. And, um, and remember, this is interview confirmed purging. Right. To 11% are purging at, to
0: manage weight yeah. following exposure to television. And what was on TV? What were they seeing?
1: Yeah, so really interesting question. So first of all, it's very limited content at the time. They had, you know, it was about six hours a day of broadcasting and the content was all repackaged, syndicated stuff, mostly from the U.S., some of it from Australia. The locally produced content was about 20 minutes of news that was repeated, um, you know, once in the evening. And what I would say is the, the kind of stuff they were consuming was pretty prosaic. It was soap opera stuff. And. Um, You might remember um, Beverly Hills 90210 um, from way back. And that was one of the favorites. And what was so interesting about this and what distinguished this from what they had already had access to, which is film. um, the, The films that were viewed prior to this were generally selected based on how entertaining they could be if you didn't speak English, right? So a lot of dancing and Bollywood stuff and a lot of, you know, car crashes <laughs> and, and, you know, action movies. But with the television, they didn't offer that. And what they did offer are these soap operas where people could get to know a character and that character would be in their living room or, you know, someone else's living room usually. And they would have this relationship with the characters and sort of inhabit their lives and imagine what it would be like to be them. And what was so striking in that 1998 group was what the young women said about viewing TV, which they tended to view with friends or you know a community. And they said, you know, wow, everyone looks so different um, in. Your country, and they're all thin. And um, it, that was just so startling to them. And they started to equate the thinness with the lifestyle. And the lifestyle to them was, you know, even um, well, some of it is, it looks quite glamorous, but even things like these teenagers have jobs. I'm going to study what they're doing and I'm going to figure out how to get a job. And at the same time as you have the introduction of television, you had the rapid electrification of areas of Fiji that supported the tourist industry. So you start to have um, this rapid transition into even more of a cash economy, where jobs really make a difference. But most of the people didn't have parents who had, you know, a job and you know a wage, for example, and so they were looking to the TV characters as role models for how were they going to be successful as Fiji transitioned to a more modern economy.
0: What are they telling you about the advantages of, or or what they imagined the advantages of pursuing a, a different body type compared to what they had grown up with?
1: Yeah. So, well, you know, let me touch on that 1998 cohort because and then I'm gonna fast forward to 2007. Mm-hmm. so people you know there was a sense in in some of the interviews of of um, profound demoralization the sense that they were suddenly shown a view of the rest of the world and and a mirror for themselves and that they were different and they were not catching up with the rest of the world and they also, Saw themselves as large. And they, they, this notion of, you know, we've got to be competitive, you know, maybe collectively, but also individually to get a job was was really poignant and, and connected to the purging. We we did go back, of course, because we wanted to unpack this. And one of the things we didn't, we weren't able to look at was um you know, what was the dose effect of TV? Like, uh, is it, was it just TV or was it something different? Was it how people consumed it and what else were, was going on with these young people? So we went back to the communities, um, that where the schools were, and, you know, of course, wanted to present our findings and our concern. And it was really interesting. Um, we, we started with, you know, what is often considered to be the, the stakeholders, you know, older people, right. And, um, they had a very different view um, than the young people did about some of this. And in the older um, committee members, uh, you know, there was one in particular who who expressed concern with what he termed electric lies um, on TV, but they were concerned about how young people were consuming TV because of other risk behaviors and, and mostly because of the sort of uh, ways that young people, they felt, weren't respecting traditions and customs. So that was their, you know, understandably, that was their main concern. On the other hand, they were, you know, they said, look, you know, TV allows us to not, you know, we can be connected with the rest of the world. We get news. Some of this is really valuable. So it wasn't, you know, sort of, but they were curious too. and, and, And they said, okay, you know, let's find out more. And so this time, Kathy, we we wanted to uh, get a much larger and representative sample. So we went to the Ministry of Education and we asked them for you know to to connect us with all of the schools within a you know a linguistically homogeneous group. And they did and and the schools were really terrific in in you know allowing us to recruit respondents. and we got um, we we had a good response rate and um, we recruited five hundred twenty three young women Itaoke, Fijian women for this study and this is in 2007. And in this study we were able to do a more sophisticated uh, look at eating pathology. We used the EDEQ, but then we did an interview for people who had pertinent positives and we also were able to validate that and uh, in the you know in the local version. And we also importantly the um, one of the healers who had been a participant in the focus group said to us, you know, I think you really need to look at uh, traditional herbal purgatives that young people are using. They're using it off label, they're using it in secret, and they're using it to purge. And I've heard people are doing this for weight management. So we thought it was an important thing to add because you know the EDEQ is formulated for other populations. And I'll I'll cut to the chase here. So what we found. In that um, very large sample and very representative, was that in among 523 women in the last month, 222 of them had purged to manage weight in the last month. Wow! Right. So that obviously was an unexpected finding, and interesting in many ways, because first of all, the parents, the stakeholders said, this isn't really a problem we have, right? So it was very invisible to them. Mm-hmm. But the other was when we dug into it a little more and asked these young women, so what's going on? You know, where did you get the purgatives? And how it turned out that many of them were doing it with the full permission and actually support of family members. So they were, they you know, oh, my mother gives it to me my aunt gives it to me. They're they're very concerned that I get a job. So what's interesting here is, you know, the question is that really psychopathology. The symptom, obviously, the symptom is concerning, right? You know, because purging can be dangerous no matter how you know whether it's a part of a disorder or not. But it was here. It, it seemed to be that there were social drivers that were operating to. Um, to influence the you know uh, almost a significant minority of young women to mm-hmm. purge to manage their weight and the weight management in turn was related to the hope that they would be successful in the wage economy mm-hmm. so
0: so fascinating at many levels one that occurs to me and as you're speaking you're talking about the arrival of television and The the concerns around the arrival of television and the the discussion about the double-edged sword of this technology are identical to today's generation's discussion around social media, right? So the television was... That generation's discussion about technology and exposure and social media, uh, in its form, and I think it's just fascinating to think about how it gets replicated, uh, in gener- generationally. We can we'll get to that uh, potentially, but more specifically, what I'm hearing you say, and what I want to call out and ask you to elaborate on is. In the course of this research career and your your commitment over the long term, in terms of getting to know a culture and a community and look at it from inside out, uh, you for which I should highlight you've received numerous awards in terms of your research career. And a piece of that I think reflects the your capacity to bring out a critical issue about our research approaches and global health, and how it is that we that conventional approaches and metrics and measurement that we have can in fact perpetuate certain mistaken ideas about risk and exposure in mental health generally and specifically around eating disorders. That's a big idea. And so I want to ask you to unpack that a bit for us.
1: Yeah, thank you for that question, Kathy. Something I think about a lot, because you know, I, I think about that earlier study, and I wonder if we had asked about herbal purgatives in that set of questions, would we have come away with a different understanding of what happened? Um, in, in this case, you can see that the phenotype of disordered eating, if that's what, it, you know, I, I, I want to be very careful not to over pathologize it, right? Because um, we, we have to, you know, the, the kinds of symptoms that we saw in Fiji don't map on to what we see in the DSM. And if we, you know, it's more of an OSFED picture. And when we do our epidemiologic studies um, in, in other regions of the world where the assessments were not developed by or for those populations, we run the risk of missing important local phenotypes that are locally salient, and potentially clinically salient, but just don't show up with that particular kind of assessment. And, you know, we can't know what we don't know all the time. And, you know, so back to your point about the ethnographic work, there's value in doing that deep dive into understanding what is going on behind the scenes, what are people interested in, what is going on that may be distressing to them. And then somehow finding a way to capture that mm-hmm. in the assessments we do. But we don't want to throw out the assessments we have. I mean, you'll notice I use the EDEQ. Thank you to Dr. Chris Fairburn for, for being gracious and sharing it. Um, but we, we translated it. We back translated it. We put it in the local idiom. We were very careful around that. And, um, and it was a valuable way. It was a, a foundation of our understanding of what was going on there. Obviously, it had to be augmented with this purgative question. But this is, I think, back to your point, it begs the question of what else are we missing in the field? What else is invisible to us because we are using assessments that were developed for a very specific set of populations, usually, you know, uh, the Americas, Europe, Australia, New Zealand,
0: mm-hmm. UK.
1: And, um, and think about the fact that the, if you talk about where are the most cases of eating disorders in the world, absolute number, not prevalence, it's going to be in China and India, right? Because they have the largest population. And so if you think about, well, why is it that we would not call them the, uh, why would we call them atypical? if they didn't correspond to what we thought they have more people than we do and and you know just by definition the majority of cases in the world we should be looking elsewhere in the world to at least evaluate what kind of presentations are locally meaningful and clinically dangerous because otherwise again we miss opportunities to offer treatment to mm-hmm. people who are living with it and what
0: i hear you saying is that what we learn today about eating disorders may be true today in a certain place for a certain group of people uh but that we should know that what we know now is what we know now <laughs> and that um that in fact that story is a dynamic one and that we also if we think that what we if we pay attention to what we know and apply it everywhere we're going to miss what we don't know in all of those places is that we need to bring what we know to these new fields and, um, communities, but we also need to be, as you said, humble about what we don't know. Is that?
1: You, you put it so well, Kathy. And, and there's one more thing to that I would add, which is, and and this gets us back to what's the common thread between ethnography and psychiatry, which is that we're trying to understand what lived experience is. And it, you know, whereas it's, it's, useful to use uh, quantitative methods and the 30,000 foot view and the constructs we've developed and apply them and see where they fit or don't fit. It's also imperative that we, you know, on the ground are listening to what people have to say. And what I haven't said yet today is that everything I understand about Fiji is because people in the community took the time to help me understand and correct my understanding. And I think that's the mindset we should all have as as clinicians and researchers. We started
0: out and you're saying that you thought you were going to be a linguist and that that wasn't going to be. But actually, I think there's a way in which your love of language comes through time and again in the research you're doing because you are so careful in understanding that how we talk about things and the language we use matters and the way that people talk about their lived experience and understanding what do they mean by this term or this word, what does that mean coming from this person in this time is really about language in a certain way or language is very much a part of this story. So I think you've been true to your love of language and just layered on the appreciation and and depth of attention to a love of culture and people and lived experience and research methods and um, created for so many of us a little bit of a, a glimpse of the story of Fiji that that is specific to Fiji, but also has so many lessons for the whole field in terms of how we move forward with our understanding. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for teaching us. And um, thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Kathy. It's been really fun to talk about it. and, um, And I'll look forward to our next conversation too.